Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And I'm Olivia, the Witch of Wonderlust. And this week, we are going to be talking about cycles. Before we get into everything and let our guests introduce themselves more, we are going to do what happened on this day. We are currently recording on December 20th, and Hanny, I think you said you were going to do it, so go ahead. Okay, so today we are talking about Walter Sidney Adams, who was born today. Um, He was an American astronomer who is best known for his spectroscopic studies of sunspots, the rotation of the sun, velocities and distances of thousands of stars and planetary atmospheres. He found, with Arnold Kohlschutter, that the relative intensities of stellar spectral lines depend on the absolute luminosities of the star, which in turn provides a spectroscopic method of determining stellar distances. By this method, he measured distances to hundreds of giant and main sequence stars. Adams identified Sirius B as the first white dwarf star known, and his measurements of the gravitational redshift was confirming evidence for the general theory of relativity. Fantastic. Good lead-in to everything that we're going to talk about today. Before we get going, Olivia, welcome. We're so glad that you're here and you decided to join us. For those who don't know, Olivia, the Witch of Wonderlust, has offered to join us for this episode. So Olivia, if you want to talk a little bit about yourself and your practice. Yeah, I'm Olivia. I am a 25-year-old practitioner. I've just been making videos about witchcraft on YouTube for the past few years. I guess I dwell mostly in folk magic and spirit work and things of that sort. Great. So when we were talking about having you on the podcast, you brought up this idea of cycles and their practical use kind of in people's practice. What made you interested in that topic? I mean, cycles is a really important thing in not even just practicing, but just life in general. I mean, like life is a cycle, right? But if we want to look at cycles in practices, you see especially in folk practices that we have a practice of celebrating the cycles of spring, of summer, of fall, of winter, and just kind of things going as they go. I think a big piece of being a practitioner is the acceptance that cycles are going to happen regardless or not. Yeah, I love that. So we kind of broken this episode down into kind of three parts, I would say. The first is we're going to talk about some cycles that we commonly see with science or kind of a rational sphere. And then we're going to talk about cycles within practices and in the occult community specifically. And then we're also going to touch upon cycles that land in both realms and kind of how they may have different meanings depending upon which like aspect we're looking at, or maybe ways in which they intermingle that we hadn't thought of before. So first, we will start with cycles and science. And Phil, I think you're the one who initially brought this up, which was calendar cycles. Yeah, calendar cycles, aka the worst. <laughs> also known as time zone cycles, which are also the worst. I think it would be kind of out of the scope of this podcast to really get into the nitty gritty of, I don't even say the science of calendars. It's more like math, but it's combined somewhat with astronomy. Calendar are important both in the mundane and magical world, at least to certain folks. Traditionally, many cultures relied on and still do use a lunar calendar, which can feel the most natural. That's basically where you tie your months to the literal cycles of the moon. However, eventually due to the nature of the Earth's tilt, sun cycles, etc., etc., the months would shift so much that they fall out of sync and have to be readjusted from year to year. We do not operate in a lunar cycle anymore. At least our modern Gregorian calendar is not. But we still need to have a leap year and a leap day because otherwise something like, I don't remember the exact math of it, but in several hundred years or even a thousand years, the calendar would fall out of sync. We actually have a very accurate calendar that we came up with that's even more accurate, but we don't use it for whatever reason. We go with the less accurate calendar. Calendar nonsense is also very important to researching and understanding historic festivals because, for example, I've heard it said that sometimes with like the Wheel of the Year, for example, which we'll touch on in a little bit, that some of those festivals would have lined up with the Julian calendar which is a couple of weeks ahead of ours, I think, because the winter solstice is December 13th in the Julian calendar. So it can make looking at 
historic festivals a little off. I wanted to mention as well, like there are some weird things in historic calendars, like in the Attic calendar, I think they used to, instead of having a leap year, they would just randomly add an extra month every few years, (laughs) which makes it really confusing when you're decoding dates from historical festivals, because obviously some years are different to others. You just have to translate the the different calendars across, which is um, an interesting endeavor. Yeah. And as someone who is a Hellenic polytheist who celebrates some of the festivals, it's a nightmare because you're looking at a lunar calendar in a non-lunar system. Well, so then based on that, that actually brings up a really interesting question of like whether or not you think it's worthwhile, I guess, celebrating things according to our current lunar calendar outside of like the lunar cycle if it's not accurate according to historical sources. Like if you had to pick like calendar celebrations versus more seasonal based celebrations. Uh, I don't know. I feel like calendars are good for structure, just a basic idea, but seasonal just makes more sense because especially with climate change, things are going to change regardless. And, you know, a lot of people have seasonal depression. And being that things are warming up, especially here in Colorado, we have had, I think, by this Wednesday, so the 22nd of December, we would have the latest snow since like the 70s or something like that. But we're getting a lot more sun. It's a lot warmer. And I noticed that a lot of my friends who do have the seasonal depression are not really all that depressed at the moment just because there is a lot more sun. Not that that's, you know, I'm saying, oh, where's my snow and my friend's depression, but it's more of, you know, things are going to change as cycles change in in your environment, you're going to change with your cycles in your body. It just is naturally more intuitively easier to adapt to those things rather than, okay, well, it is December. So like, you're not going to be like, well, it's December. So, you know, I'm going to just turn on my seasonal depression. Like, that's just not how that's going to work. Right. I mean, not that anybody would do that. Calendars are good for more of like a bigger mm, overview of things rather than like, if you're going to put it into practice or something of that sort, or if you're planning a beach day, you know, something like that, it's like, you can plan it with a calendar but it just depends on what the environment's going to be like. That actually brings up a really good point of how the calendar year does not kind of rule the natural world. And so as we see climate change affect kind of the plant cycles and the ecosystems of the world, we're going to see a continual shift. And that's also going to impact like what is available at what times. And so some things that maybe used to grow at a particular time that were maybe used for historical celebration might not be available the longer that we, you know, continue on. And so there's going to need to be some flexibility and adjustment when it comes to celebrations and what we have naturally available to us because of the changing climate. I have to say, I do like the lunar calendar because it gives you like regular prompts. Like it's, you know, it's it's not going to change. You, you're always... You're always going to have like, you know, the next full moon coming up, the next new moon coming up. It's it's always kind of there for you, if you like. And I like that structure and regularity because it kind of keeps me not necessarily accountable, but it just kind of is a constant, a constant reminder of my spiritual practice. So I definitely agree with you, though, like um, if you have something, a practice which is very earth based and you're doing, I do a lot of foraging, for example, you can definitely see the changes in the land and, the you know, the, it, it's very, very different. And we don't necessarily recognize that when we're bound we're binding ourselves to like a a wheel of the year you know yule's technically tomorrow (laughs) and like it's very cold where i am right now but there's no snow on the ground and sometimes like i I was thinking about this earlier with like christmas coming up everyone's singing christmas songs i'm just like why doesn't christmas take place in like the middle of january because it's about a lot of solstice celebrations are about coming out of the dark and getting through the winter and I'm like but wouldn't it make more sense in like a midwinter and not like the beginning of winter yeah I I don't know how people in Florida celebrate Christmas or people in Australia or New Zealand where it's literally their summer I don't know it's just I I'm so tied to the land or like my brother lives in California I don't know how Christmas is in California like it's just it's awful yeah It seems weird. It feels very, it seems like it would feel very disjointed from like what's actually happening. Well, when I was in LA, it was very stagnant, like just because the seasons don't really change. You get a rainy period in like late winter, early spring. 
And that was always really nice. But otherwise, it's kind of like a like you're hitting pause and you're not really going through any of the months. Like you don't really recognize the changes in the land all that much. It, and it's really weird coming from Colorado when you work with the land, especially because you see those cycles with all the plant allies and you see those cycles just around you in the in the weather. So, yeah, L.A.'s awful. I mean, California, Southern California, Northern California is not that bad. And I'm not going to shit on that. So. I do think like if I were to go somewhere that didn't have kind of these like super obvious seasonal cycles, it would be really hard for me to like keep up with time because even now, I mean, with work and everything, weeks will pass by and I'm just like, I have no idea what day it is to ask me questions. Like when I walk outside, it's like, oh, it's colder. It's getting, you know, closer to the end of the year or it's getting like stupid hot. It's probably, you know, heading into summertime. So yeah, those are definitely like clues to me just as like a human that things are changing. And I think that can be really useful as even just like a way to kind of pinpoint where you are, what you need to do, so on and so forth. I think this kind of leads into, I had this later on in the outline, but I can move it up because I think it's more applicable here. How cycles show up in the rational world and seasons, plant cycles and the sun. We kind of are all coming to that conclusion of the four seasons are, are kind of arbitrary when universally applied. And I think it's kind of silly that we apply them universally, especially when you, you know, some places like the Northeast and United States experience four seasons and that it's a time of planting and warming and plants coming back to life. Then there's a time of bloom and of warmth and heat. Then there's a time of harvest and decay and then a time of death and cold. So while most people use the four seasons to describe the cycle of the sun, which would be equinox, solstice, equinox, solstice, not everywhere on earth experiences the four seasons in that sort of planting cycle, like I explained. Like ancient Greece only had three seasons, which roughly equates to our fall, summer, and spring, roughly. Some places have wet and dry seasons. And from my understanding, the Hindu calendar, also known as Panchang, has six seasons, which is spring, summer, monsoon, autumn, pre-winter, and winter. Yeah, I was like, I was surprised that it was a lot of seasons. I was like, oh, I didn't know that more than four seasons could exist. But yeah, I think it's kind of arbitrary the way that we designate seasons. And I think especially as, you know, coming with climate change, I, I think the way that we understand seasons is going to to change drastically. But I think cross-culturally, we see seasons tied with plants, which makes sense. Which then begs the question of, and I think this is also later in our outline, but I'm bring it up here. Discussion of ideas like the wheel of the year, right? They're so centered around the classic like four seasons. Um, and then we have all of these Sabbaths and celebrations around those. You may have the ones that are at the equinoxes and the solstices, which I think are a little less, I guess, variable. But then you have all the others which fall in specific seasons and are very specific to like, what's the one that I'm thinking of? I think it's Maybod, right? It's like a bread banking season because it happens in fall. And so it's all about like this abundance and the start of growth and harvest. But if you're in an area where that isn't necessarily what happens in terms of the climate, then it becomes really difficult to celebrate that in the way that it's classically recommended if you read like most book and books. And so I think sometimes we also have to consider like cycles like that that are so common in the witchcraft community aren't necessarily the best way to go about them because they're rather exclusive to people who don't have those cycles. Well, there's a book, it's The Year of the Witch by Temperance Alden, and that is hands down the best Wheel of the Year book anybody will get their hands on. And I say that because she lives in Florida, so clearly Florida doesn't exactly have the four seasons that Colorado would get, right? She grew up with a lot of traditional practices, and she's also an avid reader, so she has a lot of books under her belt that are basically working with the wheel of the year, but the traditional wheel of the year with the four seasons. And she living in Florida is like, well, fuck, I don't have that. So like, what the hell am I supposed to do when everybody else is frolicking in the snow and I'm still humid and hot? I don't understand. And so she wrote this whole book and it gives you a really good foundation and structure on how to structure and basically create your own traditions. And I don't, I think people are really scared of breaking tradition as if it's a bad thing which it's not. I mean, there's there's good things with traditions, but there's also so many things. It's like, you know, there's so many things in traditions that I'm so glad are still not around, you know? She gives you really good foundations in order to do that. And I think way more, not even practitioners, but just people in general should start applying that to their lives and their own celebrations. Like, why do you have to do it just because the rest of the world is doing it? And it, it doesn't feel right to you. you know, that doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really, really excellent point, actually. I haven't read Temperance's book, but that sounds really, really great. You'll um, love I think it. it's maybe worth pointing out as well, like these um, festivals that the Wheel of the Year mentioned in the Wheel of the Year, they're based on like traditional British festivals. Often they're lifted from, you know, like um, in bulk is lifted from a, a Scottish Gaelic festival, I believe. Um, but they're not they're not the same as the, as the original festivals. So it's a kind of just like a weird appropriation of those. I, I don't want to use the term cultural appropriation lightly, but it, it's definitely a strange shift. And I don't think that we should necessarily be lifting those folk, folk traditions without really understanding where they actually come from. I think you're absolutely right. Like we shouldn't be afraid to create, create and forge um, a new understanding because mm-hmm. the Wheel of the Year was kind of a hodgepodge regard, regardless of, right. you know, various different things and stuck together by um, Wiccans. Yeah. Well, and I mean like you just stated a lot of the wiccan traditions in the the magical community are the ones that are withheld with this like on this pedestal of oh these are the ones that we need to celebrate and for the longest time i mean i still don't really celebrate any of them i celebrate them with friends if they are celebrating them but it's not something that i go out of my way to do and you know i get a lot of those questions as an online witch of oh what are you doing for Samhain what are you doing for Maven what are you doing for Imbolc what are you do? like all these things and I'm like nothing <laughs> you know because I don't celebrate those maybe I celebrate one or two of those or maybe my own version but I'm not doing anything for those specific days or those specific celebrations because they, they aren't mine first of all and second they don't connect with me and third it's like maybe I have a lot of people on the other side of the world that it's like okay well it's really hot why I don't really you know I'm not gonna go outside and like make a snowman or whatever because I don't have snow it just doesn't make any sense and it's just kind of it. it's also like makes you feel like you're doing something wrong you know if you can't celebrate the certain things that the world is telling you you should be celebrating which obviously isn't true but it still makes you feel a little left out you know it's interesting I think that brings us to a point of like because we also have traditions in and of themselves are kind of this consistent cycle that occurs throughout time. People never want to break tradition. But as much as we talk about cycles and their importance and their continuation being important, I think we should also acknowledge, you know, as a community in general, that breaking a cycle can sometimes be just as beneficial as sticking to a cycle. Um, And so there's no reason why just because it has been continuous up, you know, up until now or to this point, that it needs to continue. Making your own traditions and breaking those cycles can be equally as beneficial as, you know, sticking to a traditional cycle. Well, I mean, there's so many things too in not even just seasonal, but it's like cycles of bad habits or cycles of picking bad people in your life or family cycles of how you treat each other, you know, and like passing those down. It's like you are allowed to break those and hopefully you do. And not saying that's an easy thing by any means, but that's a big thing in the practitioner world as well of like, you know, you need to know when to break certain cycles, especially if they're not healthy, because then how are you going to pursue anything if you have this vicious cycle, right, of something that's super unhealthy and that's making you stagnant or even harming you? And you think that's a big part of like witchcraft and occultism in general, and it ties really well into this topic I've heard of in like spiritual alchemy specifically, which is so in spiritual alchemy, there's kind of seven steps of this process. But step number six is distillation. So after you've kind of broken everything apart into the salt, sulfur, and mercury of the prima matter, then you can distill it and in essence purify um, the essence of whatever you're looking at. And spiritually, this kind of replicates what we would want to happen within ourselves. So each process um, of this kind of breaking it down is like the breaking down of our connection to the physical realm. So your connection to yourself, your ideals, your morals. I mean, something is as something like your name, which we help, like have such a connection to. Well, not everybody, but some people certainly do. And even things like your gender, just becoming like essentially the essence of spirit and who you are without having that being tied to anything in the physical realm. And so this process of distillation and breaking it down and how that can be super useful as practitioners, like, I don't think we take that seriously enough, um, how the occult and witchcraft is, as much as it is meant to also enhance your life, you know, within the physical realm, 
there's also an aspect of this kind of inner alchemy and this transformation that occurs by a constant reflection upon your life and how you think about things, a breakdown perhaps of misconception. And this then leads into obviously the responsibility of, you know, talking to people like POC and like BIPOC people within the community, getting their perspectives, breaking down your own ignorance and educating yourself and then rebuilding that into something that is better than what it was before. It's not a good sign when somebody says this is just how it's done, right? Like that, when has that ever been a good answer for anything? This is just how it is. This is just how it's done. Especially you as scientists, right? It's, it, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why is it done that way? What, what efficiency and what product do I get from just having this done just this way? And, you know, I, I was actually having a conversation earlier about how, uh, you know, systems are good, cycles are good, but it just depends on what it's for and what you're getting out of it. It's almost like every cycle is an opportunity to start anew, I guess. I think it's interesting, like when it comes to science, so many of our innovations and like the new discoveries have come because people have broken some kind of cycle. I mean, how many times in history have we seen, oh, this is the way that it's always it's been done and it's always been done and then somebody looks at it and they're like, you know what, we could actually make this better or let's take it out of the original context and put it into use something else. Like the CRISPR technology is a perfect example of that. We've been using, actually, we hadn't been using the technology. The I think it came from bacteria, if I recall correctly. But like, it was a cycle of bacteria in terms of like a defense mechanism. We saw that cycle of what happens when it's infected. And we we're like, oh, you know what, let's take that out of this cycle and let's use it for something else. And it's created this like innovative technology that we can then use to create new medicine for people. That's also why like observing cycles can also be really helpful because by the observation, you can maybe see something that you could use somewhere else and be innovative and break that cycle of tradition. Yeah, it all like is so intermingled, which is classic of a cycle. Speaking of cycles, one thing kind of scientifically I wanted to touch on is something that people throw around a lot, but I don't necessarily think maybe fully understand. And it's this idea of energy as a cycle. And I'm talking about physical energy here, not spiritual energy, although you could kind of apply it the same principles, I think, to spiritual energy. I think people in our community hear a lot the term, you know, Newton's first law of thermodynamics. And this idea that energy cannot be created or destroyed, like energy can only be transferred or changed from one form to another. We see this like overall in the measurement of entropy, which is essentially organized energy, and enthalpy, which is free energy in a system. And I think what's sometimes misunderstood within this kind of terminology is that this transfer of energy is not always something that is like measurable or observable even though it's happening all the time. And so there's this continuous cycle of, you know, we have organization, they get broken down to become free, only to then become organized again and then become free. And it's like a continuous cycle, right? All the time. This could be compared magically to spiritual energy, right? And I think we talk about it a lot, but maybe not necessarily in this context where like you pull energy like from the earth, right? To assist you in your workings, you send it out, it returns, you pull it back, it returns. Like it's this continuous back and forth as well. And that's sometimes why I think people talk about like working with the earth, but they oftentimes remove themselves from that cycle. And I'm like, you are part of the cycle of like nature and the earth and how things, how things come about. I mean, compared to the earth, our lifespans are like super tiny (laughs) and our life and death cycle to the earth is nothing. But like, while we're here, we are a part of nature cycles in the natural ecosystem and of the earth. And you can use that in your practice in so many ways. What are your thoughts on that? And like, what um, do any of you have like practical ways that you've applied that idea like to your own practice? Yeah, I think it's something that I find quite important, actually, this kind of allegory between like the energy that is kind of flows through organisms, but also through ecosystems. And I guess I see this a lot because I work with microbiomes, I work in kind of with large ecosystems, and I see the interplay between lots of organisms at once. So from this level, I guess I see energy transferring from organism to organism and you can scale that all the way up so you can you can see you know mushrooms decaying wood and you can see that wood decaying and starting to supply other plants and those other plants growing up and providing energy for other organisms like it, it scales from such a tiny level to the biggest level possible i think that has is like crucial to my understanding of connecting to the land because it's like finding my place in those cycles and not disrupting them. 
Does that make sense? Almost like a representative of that kind of divine spark that flows through everything. So yeah, I think it's something that's very important to me, but obviously also important not to impose myself upon that ecosystem. Adding on a little bit of that, you know, you you mentioned earlier that you said that you forage quite often. And keeping that in mind of knowing your place of where you are in that ecosystem, in that transfer of energy, when you're foraging, it's one of the top rules of just, you know, you don't forage everything. You take a very small amount. You take what you need, if that is anything, and then you leave the rest for the rest of the ecosystem. And it's a small idea going out when you're foraging, but it's an important thing to keep in mind because, you know, then you're not disrupting that ecosystem. You're not taking away that energy that maybe some of those animals are going to need through the winter. Going into that a little more, I mean, I want to hear your other ideas on it because I'm going to go straight into the idea of death. Whatever you want to say now, it would be now (laughs) before I get on my soapbox. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I feel like I think I feel like it's fine to to get into the the soapbox of death because what I have to the things that I have to add are uh, tie into death because I think that death is a very theologically important thing. It's it's one of the aspects that is both tied to the rational world and the spiritual world, death and rebirth. I mean, we see it even if you live in a place with or without four seasons, you see death and rebirth with harvests. Like every place has has a plant that bears fruit and dies back. The one thing I actually want to touch on just before we get into that, um, we talked to Katie talked about, you know, the cycles of some like something really small then growing into an ecosystem. I just want to remind people, like as a molecular biologist, I'm like very passionate about the small cycles that occur, the things that you can't see. But even within like your cells, you have cycles like the Krebs cycle, the TCA cycle that help you survive. And even just the cycle, like the use of ATP, which is what you know creates energy and gives your cells the ability to to do what they need to do. So I think a lot of times also people not necessarily disregard, but don't consider it because it's such like a natural thing just to, like be alive. Like we wake up every day, we don't even think about it. But it's important to also recognize that within your own body, you have cycles upon cycles upon cycles to keep you alive. Even the cycle of your skin, you, sh- you essentially get new skin every seven years because of the, the life cycle of your skin cells. Those are also not things to take for granted and to be aware of because it's all of those like miniature cycles and these tiny things that you can't see that form you as a person. And so that's important to you know consider that too. Okay, let's talk about death. Let's go. I mean, I'm going to try to keep it on cycles, but it shouldn't be too hard being that death is pretty much a cycle within itself. I think this is something that when you mention the word death, a lot of people kind of cringe or like step back and they're like, oh God, what are you talking about? You know, and especially when you equate it to something like witchcraft or spirituality and you're saying death, that can evoke a lot of different thoughts and emotions. I think the biggest thing that maybe people talk about it a lot, but don't actually put the work into doing is acceptance when it comes to death. And that doesn't mean just physical death. You know, you know, you can do the the ego death and blah, 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 whatever. I'm not going to talk here about that. You know, death within cycles of just being alive. And this goes back into breaking those cycles, right? Of, um, patterns of things that don't serve you. And sometimes they might serve you at one point in your life, but you have to kind of recognize when that's when that time comes to an end, when that that pattern needs to die, when that old self of yours needs to die. That can be really hard for people because there's a comfort zone there of like, well, I knew who this person was and they used to think like this. They used to, you know, like this kind of food and hang out with these kind of people. And if you want to go anywhere, you have to let that person die. And that's not as easy as it sounds. You know, you have to let go of that friendship and let that friendship die. And that sounds so sad, but it, and you're allowed to grieve that, you know, but we don't talk about that too often that it's, it's okay to let things end. It's okay to, you know, move away and you're allowed to miss those things. You're allowed to grieve those things, but people have a really hard time letting go and just accepting that sometimes things are just over. It just needs to be done. Because if you just hold on to the same thing, first of all, that's not going to do you, that's going to do you worse. If anything, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get any stronger or any more powerful in whatever you want to become more powerful in. Once you start getting comfortable with accepting the things that you just can't change, going along with the good cycles makes it just so much easier. Yeah, I mean, that's why the death card is one of my favorite tarot cards. Like people who don't know tarot, 
whenever I'm like doing a reading because people even if they they're like I don't believe it can you give me a reading and I'm like okay sure uh, yeah I'll pull the death card for myself or something or even for them and I always get excited and they get can so confused because for me the the death card is so much it's about beginnings in a lot of ways as much as it is for endings because when something dies you're beginning something new whether that's you know, beginning a new life without a person or one door shuts and now you have to figure out what to do when something dies, whether it's literal or, or metaphorical, it's gone and now your new life begins without whatever it, it is that has died. I mean, how many times do we see like various myths of dying and rising? That's like a huge thing of like in the myth of Persephone or Kore, you see very much like a lot of people read her myth as her going down to Hades as her dying and her act of dying is what then ascends her to godhood that she becomes Persephone after she has died <laughs> and that myth is also so much about Demeter's grief and trying to find her daughter and then in a way striking this sort of compromise and the mysteries of the ancient greek world were so much centered around this death and and resurrection is not the word because it's not a true resurrection transformation yes that's the word yeah transformation well it's something you said you know you talk about demeter's grief especially in the occult world when death is brought up and acceptance is brought up it's almost like grief is just completely passed over like oh you should just be going straight from the death of whatever is dead or dying straight to acceptance and no that's like first of all it's just not fucking healthy like don't do that second grief is like the whole in between that's the whole journey you know and it's not a to b it's a and then like a bunch of scribbles and a bunch of ups and downs and a bunch of what the fuck's happening and then maybe to b and there's a quote I'm probably gonna quote it wrong I also don't know where it came from so really good source I know but what is it? It's grief is the price of loving. It never ends, right? You never you never get over something. You never get over grieving over something that was lost. Um, like, for example, a lot of people lose relationships. You know, that's a very common thing, whether it's friendships, family, you know, significant others, whatever. And even if they were really toxic relationships, you can still grieve the good parts. Like, that's allowed. And that's that's not spoken about is often like it's almost like no 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 get over it. like that person was terrible and it's like you're allowed to be like you know I do miss these good things about how they used to do this for me or how I felt when we hung out that one day and it's like you're allowed to grieve those things I know this is a podcast so you can't see it but I'm gonna do my best to describe this to you there's a chart and it's showing your grief so say you know you lose something and it's you and your grief, and it's a circle within a circle, and they're very close together, so it almost looks like just one circle. But then as time goes, the outer circle starts growing, and that grief that's the inner circle stays the same. So that grief doesn't ever get bigger, but it, it doesn't get smaller, it doesn't go away, right? The time just grows around it, and you have more cushion. And I think that that space in between those two are the the grief moments right it's the it's being able to have that time between the moments that you grieve and that was a really interesting point that you brought up I mean just very briefly but I don't think it's talked about especially in the occult community enough it's interesting the analogy that you brought up because when I think of grief like grief itself is a cycle <laughs> to bring us back there you know grieving what you've lost and then acceptance of what you of those feelings and then, you know, looking forward to what you will get. And then there's also the potential that you will lose what you've gained and you continue the cycle, right? I like to think of grief kind of as like an infinity sign. So you have the infinity sign, you have kind of these two circles. One is what you had in the past, one is what you will go to in the future. And grief is that point in the middle where they meet around which there's a circle within that. It's kind of like a Venn diagram, right? Of Like an infinity sign. So within that circle, you have this um, part of it where it's like a grief of what you've lost from the old like sphere and then the middle point which is where you're kind of coming to this acceptance and then the new sphere is this appreciation for what you've gained because of what you've lost 
And so the infinity sign kind of represents that continuous cycle. And then grief is just a little part in the middle where you transition from what you've lost to what you've now gained. Yeah, or taking it back to plants, which apparently I can't get my mind up, my mind off. I think the idea of grief is almost like the decay of your whatever died. Um, and it allows you to break down the grief into something new so you can build the foundation for the beginning of the next cycle. So it doesn't go away. You take it in. It becomes part of you. You learn new things, you build a foundation and the next cycle begins. So it's not as if you're pushing everything away when you let something die, but rather it gets broken down in a way that is hopefully beneficial to you and and you can learn these lessons. Um, I think that by watching ecosystems, you can actually, you can learn a lot about how these things progress. And this is actually building off of something that you said earlier, Olivia, but you mentioned that we like the our life is a cycle and you know we focus on things at the time that serve us and then we leave them behind to continue growing and in many ways i think about it as a transition through life right so like as we're a child our needs are very different than they are as a teenager and as a young adult and then as an adult and then as you know somebody who's elderly in and of itself those are kind of like sub cycles to this cycle of life and so that kind of you know, as a child, like we reminisce of on our, you know, years as children sometimes, you know, man, I wish I could go back and like be the child who frolics in the woods and pretends like I'm making potions or, you know, running around with a stick in my hand, pretending it's a wand. But like now there's so much responsibility and you don't have that time to be free. But it's, you know, that time while you've lost it, maybe in terms of like how free it was, that's also kind of laid the groundwork for things like the way that you are today. And the things that you, you know, focus on now, like for us, Hanny, you and I, <laughs> like science is a big part of who I am. But there will come a time when science will no longer serve me and who I want to be as a person. And I will have to leave that behind and move forward. But it's laid the groundwork for me to continue growing in other ways. And so, yeah, it's just like within life itself, we have this cycle of grief for what we've lost in different areas, like different parts of our life. But at the same time, how those have been so foundational in building us as people as we continue through life. I mean, yeah, when you look at the Eleusinian mysteries, which I don't usually like to talk about, but I will talk about the mysteries for today. I mean, they're the entire foundation of mysteries. And one can argue that the mysteries are the foundation of a lot of the ancient Greek religion, which is the foundation of a lot of Western knowledge and philosophy, that the mysteries are at the center of that. And at the center of the mysteries is grief, is Demeter's grief. Hecate helping Demeter look for Kore and Kore's death and rebirth and that at the core of this goddess who is said to have helped humanity become civilized, helped humanity not die in the wintertime <laughs> because of her association with agriculture is this story of, of death and, and grief. You know, I, we've already talked about how death isn't always a bad thing. You know, it's not always this like deep, dark, scary thing. But it also shouldn't always be viewed as a loss, depending on what it is. Of course, it is a loss in a lot of ways, but depending on what it is, it shouldn't always be viewed as a loss because if you work with death in your practice, kind of, I mean, I, I do so quite often, a lot of it's destruction. And again, that sounds really bad, but it's not. Like, if you're, say, if you're stuck in a spot, you're stuck in a cycle. And you want to break that cycle, you need to destroy whatever is in that way, or whatever you're putting in your own way. And so you need to put to death that thing that's standing in your way between you and that thing that you want, right? You know, you do need to destroy those things that are in your way. And it's not a loss. It's sometimes it's a victory of overcoming something and putting to death something that was never good for you, or that was always standing in your way. One of the beauties about the craft and you know the practice and like the occult in general is that you don't always have to do it alone like for instance with me when it comes to breaking bad habits there's there's a lot that you do kind of as a supplement to your magic like you know we always say that magic alone will not solve your problems it's a combination of magic and then also mundane works when I'm trying to break a bad habit like for me specifically since I work really heavily in like planetary magic I will often call upon the forces of Mars, whether it be the Olympic spirits or the intelligences or the spirits themselves, and ask for them to assist in like breaking down these, you know, bad habits, for example. And you can even do that with with people if somebody's being really toxic in your life. 
You can do like the sun to burn the connection that's there and to bring light back into, you know, this area of your life or cord cuttings would be kind of the witchcraft like equivalent of that, right? And so there's never a bad reason to cut something out of your life. And in that, and you might still grieve. I think that's the other thing is like, even if it's for good, you still probably have an emotional connection to whatever it is. And you are still going to grieve. I'll, I'll stop here with my soapbox. <laughs> hey, next spot, maybe the next episode you come on, we'll have it be entirely about death. The whole Bet. thing. The other kind of obvious cycles I think we should touch upon are the astrological cycles or astronomical cycles, depending upon how you want to look at it. As a planetary magician and an aspiring astrologer, this is something that I find really important to both myself and then also my practice. We've kind of touched upon it already, but the most obvious cycle that I think people are familiar with is that of the moon, which cycles through its phases every single month, starting with a new moon, followed by or waxing to a full moon, and then um, to then repeat the cycle. But these astronomical cycles, like I think a lot of people are probably aware of, exist within other planets. And, you know, their properties can impact our day-to-day life, depending on whether you believe that astrology is, you know, causality or just significations. But that's a topic for a different time. Scientifically, actually, we don't really have evidence of the cycles of the planets, like significantly impacting like our day-to-day lives. But I've come to find like through my study of astrology that they definitely do. A lot of people know that at the beginning of this podcast, I like was not the biggest believer, (laughs) you could say, in astrology, but that has quickly changed because I've seen it in work and I've seen how these cycles do impact people in their day-to-day. So just for a couple of examples, like outside the moon, Mercury is the planet with the fastest cycle around the sun. It has an orbital period of about 88 days compared to our 365-day year. And this idea also fits with, you know, Hermes being the messenger of the gods and being able to traverse all realms, both the Aaronic, the Caponic, and the physical. This symbolism of kind of moving between realms can also actually be seen in the extreme temperature fluctuations of Mercury because of its closeness to the sun, with temperatures ranging from negative 193 degrees Celsius, which is approximately like negative 315 degrees Fahrenheit, to like 426 degrees Celsius and 800 degrees Fahrenheit. On the other hand, Saturn is has an orbital period of about 29 and a half years compared to Earth, which is just one year. And a single season, quote unquote, on Saturn would last about like seven years. And the length of this cycle actually fits really well with the significations in astrology, which are often, you know, being restricted or limited or can sort of signify like long-term things. Regarding the restriction and limitation, I think a lot of people misconstrued maybe how what this means in terms of a cycle it's not necessarily that you're limited in like what you're able to do but it might be more of a you're in this cycle the ways in which you can get out are limited or you feel limited and unable to break a cycle that's kind of like what saturn would represent at least to me i have a stupid question sorry yes um, so you know how planets orbit if a planet is far the further farther away further away from does it have less of an impact? So no, it's just different, right? Like the planets, the farther away they get, the longer, generally speaking, their orbit becomes. And so I wouldn't say they have less of an impact. They just have impacts in different ways. Like it's not so cut and dry. But like if you don't want to use like astrological cycles because it's it's a hoot and a holler trying to like get through all of that. If you don't want to go that far in depth, the other thing that I see people use pretty commonly like within the occult community is this idea of planetary hours and the planetary days. And the nice thing about the planets is that the cycles, they're so variable. And so you can really like adjust the time that you want. For instance, the hours, it's 24 hours. It restarts every single day. And the planetary day cycle is a seven day week. And so those offer kind of short-term cycles if you maybe don't want to wait for the lunar cycle to reach the specific point that you need or otherwise. And the fun part about like this in my practice is where I get so nerdy. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I really enjoy using astrological timing and planetary magic specifically for like talismanic magic or electional astrology, which is essentially where you kind of talismanic magic, especially I work more with in terms of astrological timing. So let's say that you have the conjunction. I know we have like a, um, I think it's a Mars Saturn conjunction coming up in this upcoming year, like around March or April. And like that could be energy. It depends on the person that you maybe want to collect and then save for a specific purpose and maybe a continual thing. And so that's when you could create a talisman to then, you know, call it on the energy and like, quote unquote, trap it within. And so then whenever you need that kind of like 
martial energy with with Saturn, you can bring out that talisman and add it to one of your workings. People who who are familiar with astrology, you know about like benefics, malefics, and how those can impact a person's chart. And so if you want to start something and let's say that maybe you want to start a business, you might choose to start it on a day when during the day when you're going to have a diurnal chart and maybe you want Jupiter in your second house, which deals with finances. And if you have the day chart, Jupiter would be your greater benefic. And so that would mean like a lot of good coming from finances based upon your business, right? And so you can use the astrological timing to determine when the best time is to start things. I actually went back and looked at the astrological chart of this podcast and it was very interesting. Do any of you use like planetary hours or correspondences in your practices? I am like the most ceremonial person here, so. I'll use the days sometimes, but otherwise... I don't really use the plan. I want to use the planets a lot more often than I do, but most of the time it's just the days. Yeah, I think the days and the hours are the easiest thing to incorporate into your spell work, regardless of whether you're like a folk practitioner or, you know, ceremonial or even a Hellenic polytheist. Sometimes what I'll do is rather than scheduling something for a day, I will look back on what happened on a particular planetary day or hour and I'll kind of see whether that reflects kind of what happened at that particular time so say like I did a ritual on that day but sometimes I'll see if it is informative and actually I I tend to find that it generally is I haven't really say attuned myself to those cycles well enough to 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 incorporate them though um, as yet I mean I, I don't do a lot of spells or a lot of like magic tm but when i do i will use the the planetary hours and for me hmm, it's interesting because like a lot of like the planets are based on the roman names of planets which can be syncretized with greek deities i don't usually syncretize them except for hermes and mercury but yeah i'll use the planetary day and the planetary hour mostly because i have an app that tells me everything I need to know and I know a decent amount like about each planet but yeah no I feel like math lady whenever people start talking about astrology I'm just like what my favorite thing to do with the planetary hours like I really enjoy planning out my day according to the hours so like if if feasible it's not always you know totally possible but generally if I'm going to if I'm like writing a paper or I'm writing a report or something I might start that during a mercurial hour or if I'm doing something for a client, so if I need to start a project or maybe I'm ordering something, I might do that during the hour of Jupiter. And so it it's a way to kind of build that into my like day-to-day life, which is really fun sometimes to try and make that work. Can't talk about this in detail, but I recently had an experiment where I was looking at essentially the bacterial and you know viral load on a particular sample. And the sample came from the ecosystem. And so I did this during, I intentionally, like intentionally did this during the hour of Saturn because I wanted it to represent the kind of overall, and I was, I was purifying essentially. So my, my goal was that from this sample, I would get a like good representation of everything that this sample had like gone through. And so it would encapsulate like a really good representation of this item. And so it was interesting then because we got back the results from the sequencing data that we got and we had such a, like a good array, you know, a great Gaussian curve, like no weird variations. And while I certainly can't say like, yes, this is due to like the fact that I did it during this, you know, Saturn hour. I thought it was interesting looking back and saying like, I intentionally started it at this time. And like, that was the result that we got. Kind of a weird, like I would probably call it a coincidence though, you know, I'd like to believe that my choice has something to do with it. I'm curious about the hours. So if you were to plan to do something okay so for example what would be the planetary hour for saturn it depends on the day so okay so it changes so it changes yeah so let's say that let's say that it's a tuesday so tuesday mm. is ruled by mars that means the first planetary hour which starts at sunrise is dedicated to mars then it rotates through the planets in the typical chaldean order and so you would just follow that like through there are apps we can share the one that like i have one that i use that i can share with them yes you want to please link do because i'm then I'm curious, I'm assuming that like, like if we're on the same app, right, but we're in different time zones, the hour for both of us would still be the same planet, planet hour, planetary hour, whatever, because that's where the planet is at the moment, but it wouldn't really matter what time zone you're in, right? As long as it's, I'm not explaining this correctly. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. Okay. It's- okay. <laughs> so you said that it's, it's based on sunrise so if you and i were going to do the same ritual in different time zones but we wanted to work with the same planet 
could we do that? Or would you have to do it at sunrise and I would have to do it at sunrise, but they would be different hours, like actual hours because of the sunrise. It would, yeah. So it would be like technically according to like our time system, it would be different hours. But within the, the planetary scheme, it would be like the same if we chose the same hour. The other thing to consider right, is that there are two, typically two kind of like parts of that. So you have two or three, it really depends on where you start. Like there might be two Saturn hours, one in the day and one at the night. So if you both did, it would be different times according to like the time zones that we're in. But like planetary wise, we both did it during the Saturn hour of the day, depending upon when our sunrise is, it's like the same planetary hour. So we could like coordinate with that, like that. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That answers my question. Okay. <laughs> I have enough issues planning my day without like the need for planets. I don't know how you do it. Oh, right. <laughs> oh my God. It's not, it, I, it, it's not I like a constant thing. At the beginning of the day and I'm like, Hmm. Mercury hour starts at like 9.43 and it goes until 10.57. I, like, I don't do that. It's more of a like, oh, hey, I was going to do this thing today and like I have flexibility in my schedule. Like what would be the best hour to do it? You know what I mean? Occultist hard mode. Follow a lunar calendar and only structure your day by the planetary hours. Hard mode. Hard that's, mode. That's hard that would be. Oh, no, I think it's just hard mode. Never mind. Don't. I was just about to say something really dumb and also a little nerdy but it doesn't matter <laughs> I move on. you can't do that <laughs> say it well i was gonna be like is it easy mode or chill mode like on minecraft or hard mode or survival survival hard mode survival hard mode would be throw out all your calendars don't you don't get any time like you don't get a look at a clock <laughs> you don't have calendar like here's an astrolab calculate the you know right the planets and then you know calculate the planetary hours and then yeah that. like oh my god <laughs> tell me what time of year it is looking at the moon like what what's this uh app that y'all have that you have the planetary hours and all that jazz let me look i use okay. time nomad it's a bit clunky but once you get it set to planetary hour it'll like yeah you it set up. Yeah. it's like time zones but worse <laughs> it literally yeah, i don't think i can handle this yeah it's too it's too much that and also I'm too like unstructured for something like that I think that's why I'm not a ceremonialist because it's very much like you know what I need to get this done sometime today and it's not about to be on the schedule like I'm just gonna be like all right I've had my coffee and like I read my book a little bit and now I'll actually get up and do something whereas Georgina from Dot Darling she'll stay up until like three or four a.m in like the middle of the fucking night just for the hour to get like that specific on the day and i'm like dude i bet you have great manifestations but absolutely not i don't think i want anything that bad I'm like <laughs> yeah there have been a couple of times when um yeah it's like the planetary hour or i'll like miss the one during the day because i'm working or something and so i'm like well guess i'm getting up at 2 30 in the morning to oh do this yeah no hour. yeah no, there Absolutely are certain not. like fest like for Sancta Lucia, which I just celebrated, a Swedish festival. You're supposed to get up at dawn. Did I get up at dawn? No, no, no. But dawn for you now, it must it must That's be. Right. It's not that bad. I was tired. I stayed up late cooking. <laughs> I was about to get up at dawn. Oh, I already get up at dawn for no reason. Well, on December seventeenth, um, which was Saturnalia, I got up at like at sunrise a little before actually and then i did a ritual like wow. during saturn's hour on saturn's wow. day all right sets the tone for this celebration wow it was great i had a really good yeah. time anyways yeah so that's the best about planetary stuff yeah we're probably heading to getting to the end here too yeah <laughs> got off a little top uh, off topic just a little bit but it's fine <laughs> happens all right, so I think that covers it for this episode. We hope that you enjoyed um, our discussion of cycles. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us. It was lovely to have you. If you aren't already, you can find us on Instagram at Test Tubes and Cauldrons, where we post hints about upcoming episodes. And then if you also haven't, you can join our Discord, where we have lots of fun discussions about lots of lots of different things, including bad science and occult discussions and paper discussions. Um, we have great memes over there, so join us for the memes. That's what really matters. Right. <laughs> means <laughs> all right but we hopefully we'll see you over there and until next time bye everyone have a good one 